Coming to you from Jonesboro, Tennessee, the storytelling capital of the world and broadcasting from the historic McKinney Center, it is Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio hour. I'm your host, Jules Corrier. And I'm your host, Rochelle Conley. And tonight we've got a show full of life's little and sometimes not so little lessons. The stories tonight come from real people right here in this region of Northeast Tennessee. Some of them born and bred here, like myself. And other stories come from folks who, like me, moved here because they found this place so wonderful and so beautiful. We've got stories all about life, growing up and living in this place we all call home. We've also got some exciting blues music from the Jimmy D Band, which you heard earlier. Yay! They are joining us on the Storytown Radio Show for the very first time tonight, and we cannot wait to hear them play some more blues. That's right. And I also want to introduce our uh, interpreter, Beth, who is here tonight interpreting for the deaf, because I don't know how many of you all were here on April 1st for the Deaf Storytelling Concert. Raise your hand if you were here, or clap, because this is radio. Yeah. We have so many incredible storytellers that are deaf in this region. And I thought, you know what? They need to be part of this show from now on, too. So every month, we are going to have one of our deaf storytellers coming right here on the radio show who will have it interpreted, voice interpreted for, you know, those of us who are impaired in the way of reading American Sign Language. So they will be voice interpreting for us from now on. So tell your friends about that. And we are so glad to have them as part of the show from now on. So get used to Beth and Andrew and the other folks who are going to be here interpreting. And I just love it. It's like a ballet of dance with their hands. Now, before we go any further, I want to say a big thank you to our sponsors who helped make this show possible. So a big shout out to the Tennessee Arts Commission. We'd also like to thank First Horizon Bank and Sandy and Gary Degner. And we'd also like to thank those wild women of Jonesboro and the support they provide to us and so many other groups in the community. We could learn a lot from our philanthropy of our sponsors. We sure could. So with a lot of gratitude, we say thank you for allowing us to bring these tales of life lessons. Jules, I have a life lesson. Hi, Hannah. You do? I like ducks here. You like the ducks? I do too, Hannah. When you see ducks, slow down. Yes, we should all slow down our cars when we see the ducks. They have little legs. They can't run fast. Let's keep them safe. That is a very good lesson we could all learn from. Thank you, Hannah. (laughs) We do love our ducks here. Yes, slow down for the ducks and for the tourists and for me if I'm crossing the road to the corner cup. (laughs) Thanks, Hannah. Good lessons all around. Now, Rochelle, one of the biggest lessons I've learned through the years is not to make assumptions and jump to conclusions. Yes, and I have to admit that's a lesson I've learned a few times the hard way. Our first story tonight has a little something to do with this and comes to us from Jeanette Gaines and her twin daughters in a little piece we like to call 
Bingo! Most people know who my daughters are. They aren't easy to miss. They are twins. They are hearing impaired. They're adults on the autism spectrum. They are fabulous. Hello, girls. I'm feeling lucky today. Make sure you only call the numbers on my card. But you know, even though most people know who they are, I'm not really sure they always know who they are. For example, my girls love volunteering in the community, and one of their favorite places to volunteer is at assistant living centers. Everyone there seems to love all the different things that twins do there. Then, one day... Oh, 056. They were assigned to call Bingo. I-19. I-19. What'd she say? I don't know. Uh, what was that, honey? G-57. G-57. Wait, I still didn't get that last one. B-5. B-5. What's that now, honey? I can't hear you. Can you please repeat? B4, B4. Yes, B4. What was <laughs> the number before? I don't know. They keep going on. Slow down so we can hear. Can of beer? You can't drink beer here. It's the senior center. But maybe we can go to Main Street Pizza and get some after bingo. Bingo, did you win bingo? Sure, I can go. It was my idea. Oh, 74. Oh, 74. Well, I never. I'm not staying here for this. G53, G53. Well, now that's better. G53, I guess I'll stay. I won. Bingo, bingo. N31, N31. N31? Oh, 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 bingo. B7, B7. Ooh, B7, I won. But I won first. I-22. I-22. Bingo. Wait, wait, wait. I won first. How do you even know? You don't even know what numbers have been called or so you've been complaining all day long. You don't know they haven't been called. Let me see your card. You stay away from my card. Bingo, bingo. Yes, that's what we're playing. We're playing bingo. And we're calling the numbers. It's bingo, I-24. And so it went. After the fifth bingo was called, it finally occurred to the players that Magda and Molly were just as, if not more, hard of hearing than they were. Tensions eased. It's not like there was a big jackpot for the first game anyway. The prize was a set of five kitchen storage containers, which the winners split evenly, with the first bingo winner having her choice of the large bowl and a lid. It was interesting to look into assumptions all around. The first, that young people might be hard of hearing. Another, the older adults in a large community room would have no problem listening. But what confuses me and everyone else is, who actually thought it would be a good idea to put hearing impaired callers in a room full of hard of hearing seniors? <laughs> Lessons learned all around. Bingo.
job. Now, up next, we have Annie Zimmerman, whose story touches on making assumptions and a few other things. Let's see if you can figure out what she learned about life at boot camp. It was 1985. I'd graduated high school the year before with high honors, but didn't have the money to go to college. So for the first year after graduation, I worked wherever I could, mostly at minimum wage jobs like waitressing and at fast food restaurants. Having no real hope for the future I wanted, I decided to enlist in the military. Now, I'd spent three years volunteering for the Civil Air Patrol, so I knew how to march and about the history and mission of the Air Force. I knew they would train me for a job and give me food and housing and clothing in the form of a uniform. I also knew that I'd have to go through basic training, a.k.a. boot camp. The idea of going to boot camp seemed to scare some people. But it didn't really scare me. In fact, one of the things I liked about being in Civil Air Patrol, or as we called it, CAP, that was that my squadron was often visited by Air Force airmen. On those nights, we'd show off our drilling routines in front of the guest sergeant and return for the opportunity to ask him questions about what life was like in the real Air Force. You guys are pretty good at marching. But you won't have to do much of that if you enlist. Only in basic training. That's cool. Was boot camp as hard as they say it is? <laughs> boot camp is all about mind games. The whole point of boot camp is to build esprit de corps. Get you thinking like everyone else so you follow orders. They teach you how to march and make you do lots of chores. If you keep your head low, you can make it through boot camp just fine. But it's going to change you, no matter what you do. Now, when I signed the enlistment papers, I wished I'd paid more attention to those talks. But on the long flight to San Antonio, I had plenty of time to convince myself that I wasn't going to let the military mind games get to me. I was in this for the money and an opportunity to train for a job. I would keep my head down, avoid attention for six weeks, and graduate. How bad could it be? Tench, hey! Get in formation and stop yakking. You're not at home anymore. You're in the Air Force now. You there. You think you're special? Stop picking your nose and line up with the rest of the babies. You think just because it's one in the morning you deserve some sleep? You don't get to sleep when you want to, you misfits. You sleep when the Air Force tells you. Well, I got into the woman's formation, and we were bussed at Lackland Air Force Base. We marched up to a dormitory, had a bunch of rules shouted at us, and finally were allowed to climb into our bunks. Oh, didn't we just go to bed? This is only day three. Think we'll get any sleep at all before through? Everyone up and out to the tarmac before PT. Come on, girls, let's go. That was our dorm chief trying to be encouraging. She was chosen on day one and was responsible for getting us to classes on time and making sure we had our dorm in inspection order. She wasn't very happy about it. By day four, she and seven other girls were gone. By this time, I felt like I'd been pretty successful at keeping my head low. I was almost at the end of the first week of training, and I hadn't gotten into any trouble. I didn't mind the drill practice. My plan was to just fake being bad at it until all the other girls got good, too. 
But that morning, I was exhausted, and I wasn't thinking straight. All right, you lowlifes, you haven't managed to get yourselves in step yet. Today, we're going to spend the whole morning drilling. No lunch until you get it right. About face. You there. What was that you just did? Sir, uh, an about face, sir. You, you think that's how we do an about face in the real Air Force? Sir, yes, sir. What's your name, Recruit? Recruit Harmon, sir. Well, Recruit Harmon, you're now the dorm chief for flight W048. Get your fat butt up here and take charge. Oh, now I've done it. I left my place at the back of the flight and marched up to the front. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. By way of teaching, Sergeant Gordon gave me orders and I relayed them to the flight and we continued in this way to finish the drill practice. I was nervous, having the eyes of all those girls on me, and I was worried that I'd mess something up and get us all into trouble. That had to be one of the baddest days of my life and it was about to get even more worse. Get out of the chow line. You aren't supposed to be here. What? The chiefs all go in separately. Haven't you paid attention? You sit at that little table in the middle of the cafeteria with the other chiefs. Oh, I didn't know. Thanks. Well, that was only the first of many mistakes I made over the next few days. Another was not knowing that when I finished eating and left the cafeteria, the entire flight also had to leave. I'd been leaving as soon as I finished eating because I thought the T.I.s in the snake pit would come after me. Oh, man, I just sat down to eat. Now we have to go already? Wait, why is everyone following me back? Finish eating, you guys. We can't. We leave when you leave. I just didn't know. I may have been an honor student in high school, but... Basic training was more difficult than any of my AP classes. It was obvious that I wasn't the person the flight would have chosen to be chief. My mistakes kept getting worse, and I had no idea what to do about them. I just wasn't a leader. I had no idea how to motivate or encourage these women. All I could do was help them out the best I could. Double time. Harch. I hate running every morning. I can't do this. I think I'm going to drop out. Well, you can do this. Just, just run a little slower. I'll run with you. It gets easier. Believe me, if you, if you walk, we'll all have to do extra push-ups. It's only a mile. Come on. We'll do this together. Really? You'd do that for me? Oh, thanks. After another week, I'd figured out how to help some of the girls with studying for their Air Force history tests or their drill movements or getting their areas quickly ready for inspection. And during our study sessions, I finally confessed I just wanted to make it through training without any more problems. They echoed my thoughts but added that it seemed easier if we helped each other. We were building a kind of esprit de corps, if not in the way the Air Force intended. And then we got a surprise. All right, recruits, get in formation. I've got an announcement. You're looking better during drill practice. When I look at this flight, I don't see any more recruits. You've all earned the right to be called airmen, and you get to choose a name for yourselves. You've got until lunchtime tomorrow. When you come up with a name, put it on a piece of paper, and the chow runner will put it 
in that sign over there where you get permission to enter the cafeteria. Do you understand? Sir. Yes, sir. A group of us gathered in the common room that evening to choose a name for our flight. I couldn't think of anything, and they didn't either. When we got into formation the next morning, we still hadn't come up with a name. And the squad leaders, they argued about it as we waited for our turn to go to PT. Then it seemed like inspiration struck. We'd better come up with something soon. Nothing y'all said has been dazzling so far. Dazzling? Hmm, that gives me an idea. Hey, what if we do something really different? Like what? Well, when I was in CAP, we used to come up with drill routines, ways of marching around that were kind of showy. And? And after a few minutes, the squad leaders and I worked out a routine. The outer squads would sidestep in and out of the formation at the same time as the inner squads would do very slow turns. We called it the razzle-dazzle half-step and taught it to the rest of the flight by lunchtime. So, Chief... What's the new name for flight W048? The Razzle Dazzle Flight, sir. The Razzle Dazzle Flight? Is that a joke? Sir, no sir. You sure about that? Why in the world would you airmen want to be called the Razzle Dazzle Flight? With permission, sir, we can show you. By all means, show me. Flight, tanch, hut, Razzle Dazzle half step, harch. And we did it. The flight split up, some of them going left, some right, and the girls in the middle circling around in opposite directions, just like we were flag twirlers at a high school football game. From then on, we'd do our razzle-dazzle step every time we marched in formation to a class or an activity. Sometimes we'd come to a stop, and I'd forget to call out the step, and then the squad leaders would whisper to me, razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle, and we'd do it again. On graduation day, some of the girls came up to me to say how proud they were of making it through one of the hardest times in their life. We were all happy to be going on to duty assignments, yet at the same time we felt a loss. We'd endured so many hardships together, and in the end, it made our experience uniquely ours together. If I ever had to lead a bunch of misfits again, I knew I could do it. Before boot camp, I thought the word honor meant to excel above my classmates, a selfish definition that didn't help me when times were tough. Basic training taught me that honor is about respecting and helping the people I live with, no matter who they are, where they come from, or what they believe. And patriotism wasn't about devotion to ideals of nationalism under a flag. It's about devotion to one another. Someday I might go back to that CAP squadron and set those kids straight. When they ask me how to get through boot camp, I'll tell them the truth. I made it through just fine by not keeping my head down. Respect the people you live with. You'll get through it together. But it will change you no matter what you do. Well, coming up next, we have a, uh, a first-time appearance by our storyteller, Jordan Bennett, who is from the deaf community, and Jordan is actually getting her master's degree in communications and storytelling at East Tennessee State University. Please help me welcome Jordan Bennett. 
So when I was much, much younger, almost every single night I would get a pop quiz from my father. He would come home and tell me everything about his day because he interviewed people to hire at his job, which meant by the time I was eight or nine, I was fully prepared for any job interview. I knew all the answers to all the questions, all of the really interesting ones too, like if you were a tree in a forest, which one would you be? Why are manhole covers round? And which kitchen appliance are you? In order, a willow tree, so they wouldn't fall in, and a microwave. All that meant that by the time I was a sophomore in university, I was very well prepared for my first rejection. Because he told me what to do then, too. I went back to my dorm, set up my laptop, got my email ready, and wrote out, thank you so much for your time. I was just hoping you could tell me where I can improve better for next time. Sent that one off, felt a little bit proud of myself, and that was a very fast response that said, we would love to tell you, you have to come meet me in my office at 8 a.m. tomorrow. The bane of every sophomore in universities, right? 8 a.m., but I did it, I did it. I got dressed up very nicely. I had my shiniest cane, made sure my hearing aids were fully charged, because I was curious. And I showed up at her office. It was a little small, cold, dark. There was two chairs right across from one another. And I sat down and I waited to hear the three reasons why I was unhirable. Now, this was a peer instructor position and I was an education major. And the first reason that she gave me was that I didn't know campus well enough. I smiled and wrote that down, even though internally I'm thinking, I've been on this campus since I was 16 when my sister came here. I know everything about this place. But okay, okay, what about the second one? She said that I wasn't involved enough on campus. Again, I smiled and wrote that one down, but I was thinking to myself, well, she saw my resume. I had five organizations on there. One of them was the school newspaper. I went to three, four events a week. Okay, okay, what about the third one? The third one is where I knew exactly what was happening. Because she put down her notes and she looked at me and she said, well, we were just worried about your ability to connect with the students. And as she said that, I could follow her eyes up along my cane to the left side of my face and to my deaf ear. And I knew it had nothing to do with my skills and everything to do with my disabilities. But I just smiled and wrote that one down too, because what can you really do? Well, I went home and I got my laptop back out, sat in my dorm room and was ready to write a whole new email. Except I didn't write it to the job interviewer. I had written it to a, someone else in the university because that was the second meeting in that week that went that way. I also had a meeting with the program director of student teaching, and she had told me that if I was deaf and failed a hearing test, I wouldn't be able to get licensed to teach. And she told me, well, even if you made it to student teaching, we wouldn't get you an interpreter. And well, if you're really that deaf, I don't think you should teach hearing students anyway. And I wrote all that down with a smile too. Except in this email, I wrote, 
I was just hoping for some clarification on a few points. And that week, I learned two main things. One, always get everything in writing. Because that email came back, CC'd the dean of the university, and said, oh, I misspoke. Oh, I misspoke. It's okay. You can be deaf and teach. I hope so. It's the law. And the second thing was that I had to get really good at picking my battles. Because that Pew instructor position that I missed that year, I interviewed again the next year and got it. <laughs> and the year after that, well, I have a lovely license from the state of Virginia to teach K through 12 art. Thank you, Jordan, for that story of inspiration. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. And joining us on the Storytown stage here for the first time is a very special guest from over in Greenville, Tennessee. Playing rock and blue, he's built a reputation for himself all across the region. In addition to being a running member of Wallace Coleman's Southland Band, Jimmy is a two-time winner of the Bays Mountain Battle of the Blues Band. So we are so happy to have him joining us tonight. It's the Jimmy D Band.
money and let you go downtown. You come home in the evening, call me all kind of clown. Oh, baby, you don't have to go. I've been all night, mama. You don't have to go. Turn your lamp down low Whoa, baby Turn your lamp down low I'm gonna pack my bag Down the road I go Because you know we're going to call you to back up a little later on in the show to play some more music. We definitely will. That was just fantastic. Thanks, Jimmy. 
Well, coming up, we have a little bit more of the blues with a young lady visiting her farmer grandfather, getting up early to do everything that needs to be done in the course of the day on a farm, has her wanting to sing the blues. <laughs> Dad, it's still dark out. Can't we milk the cows later? Oh, don't worry. We will. <laughs> what? Twice a day. That's not really what I meant. You told your dad you wanted to spend your spring break with me on the farm. Well, here you are, and this is what we do on the farm. It is good to have you here. I love those cows, but they don't talk a lot. I guess they don't sleep much either. Uh, it's not that early. You'll get used to it by tomorrow. Tomorrow? Twice a day. Every day. Reliability. That's what I love about these girls. Dairy farming. That's a pretty dependable thing. Oh, I grow crops too, but there's something certain about knowing every day we'll have milk, butter and cream, and buttermilk to use and sell no matter what the weather does. I think I prefer the crops. Plant them in the ground, then harvest them. You don't have to milk corn twice a day. No, no, you don't milk corn. But there's planting, the weeding, the fertilizing, the watering, the picking, the shucking. Corn is its own set of work. And of course, setting aside some for feed. At least corn lets you sleep. <laughs> Young lady, I've lost more sleep over my crops than I ever have with my cows. Every time a hail cloud looms before the harvest, every time a drenching rain comes after planting, every time the dry earth starts to crack between rains, you're at the mercy of the seasons, and some are better than others. See, that's why I don't think I want to be a farmer. You can't count on anything for sure, and it's so much work, and you never know when a drought is going to come. Like bankers, they don't worry about droughts. <laughs> There's no certain job in life. That's just life. Farm in life. Did you know the year before you were born, 2008, there was a huge bank failure, a money drought. You can never tell when one of those is going to happen, but there are signs, just like there are with farming. But that year, banks, businesses, I mean major corporations went under. The year of bankruptcies. A lot of people lost their livelihoods and their homes. Most of them didn't have a backup plan. A lot of people lost everything, and I felt for them. I really did, because I know what that's like. You lost everything? Well, almost. In 78, it turned out that we'd planted the back acreage with corn. I'll never forget the day the state health officials paid us a visit. A disease hit the cattle across the county that year. They tested my animals, and our entire herd of cows and calves, except for one bull, had a disease they call bovine brucellosis. We called it Bang's disease. It was terrible. They all had to be slaughtered, all 159 of them. It put smaller dairy farmers out of business. They had to sell their farms and do something different, which is a hard thing to do. Farming, that's not what you do. It's who you are. You do it because, well, because it's in you. It's not just a job, but it's a way of life and a way to live. But you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next. <laughs> oh, and you think bankers do. 
or professional soccer players or teachers. There's uncertainty in everything you do. That's life. That's just depressing. No, no, that's exciting. That uncertainty is what makes us smarter. It is what drives us to figure things out and create things like backup plans. Your grandma and I, for instance, we planted that back acreage because we asked the question, what if? It wasn't, what if a rare bovine disease hit us? It was, what if we planted some crops to make some extra money to expand or do some nice remodeling to our home? Well, the what if saved our hides. We used that extra money we made to buy some new cattle the next season. A small herd, nothing like the big one we'd had, but in time we were able to grow them and make it back up because we had milk cows and milk for sale again in this region and people needed it. Are you trying to make a dairy farmer out of me, Grandpa? No, no. I'm not trying to make you do anything. You're going to live your own adventure. It might lead you here to the farm because it's in your blood, but it might take you somewhere else. What I want you to know is that no matter what you do, there's never a guarantee that it's going to be easy. And you don't want it easy. Nothing was invented because life was too easy. We think and grow and get better because of the challenges we face. So whatever you decide to do, don't do it because you think it's easy. Do it because it's what you love to do. Do it because it's who you are. And now who I am is hungry. Let's say we go up to the house and fix some biscuits and gravy, and if we time it right, we could be eating by sunup. Okay, but Grandpa, I might need a nap after breakfast. We want to thank our good friend Daryl Rowe, who inspired this story. Someone else we can always learn a lot from are our good friends at the Heritage Alliance. Each month, Angie Fellers Mason comes to do a segment. She filled in for Jules this year when Jules worked on the community play. But tonight we're filling in for her as she is in Nashville doing important work for the Heritage Alliance. So in her stead, we have Nancy Ray stepping in for Anne. And this segment we like to call Ask the Historian. Life lessons come in all forms and are learned throughout one's life. Thanks to the advent of social media, sometimes our lessons are very public, painfully public, and excruciatingly public. <laughs> but really, when you look back at history, the public call out is nothing new. Here are some life lessons that were published in local newspapers over the last hundred years. Some make us pause and make us wonder, what's the story behind that? Knoxville Gazette, August 11th, 1792. Elope from me about the 17th of March, 1792, my wife, Liddy Dunbar. This is therefore to forewarn all persons from trusting her or trading with her, for she is not worth a darn. And anyway, I am determined to put the law enforced against such person. John Dunbar, Jonesboro, Tennessee. Jonesboro Herald and Tribune, March 30. 1876, a young lady, after making some purchases at one of our stores the other day, was about to leave when our bachelor friend of the yardstick and scissors remarked, 
Miss A, I have something nice in striped stockings, which I would love to show you. No, thank you, Mr. B. I have something nice in striped stockings myself. The young lady tripped out of the store, elevating her dress and exhibiting a dainty ankle encased in stripes. Oh. It was a sight that sent a current of electricity down that bachelor's back, from the effects of which he will not recover for many weeks. Herald and Tribune, April 3, 1873. The course of married life does not always run smoothly. The old folks of a certain family in this town are noted for their snappishness towards each other. On All Fool's Day, the old gentleman said to a friend who was posted about the family affairs that the old lady had come very near to calling him honey that morning. <laughs> the mutual friend, being very glad to hear such pleasant news, asked what she had said. Why, sir, she said, old beeswax come to breakfast. Herald and Tribune, August 4th, 1870. The gentleman who did the snoring at the Methodist church last Sunday night, he certainly understands his business. The snoring was splendid, so loud, so quick, so annoying to those who went not to snore but to enjoy the sermon. He might with safety engage to blow a furnace instead of the old-fashioned bellows. But if he makes as much fuss with his mouth when awake as when asleep in church, we never want to hear him. Herald and Tribune, July 14th, 1870. A lady in one of our churches rested her head on the back of the pew in front of her during prayer. And just opposite in the next pew sat a young man who refused to bow or kneel. A beautiful plume on the young lady's hat occasionally touched the neck of the youth in front, who evidently considered it to be a fly. For a while, he bore the unpleasant sensation manfully, but at last, patience ceased to be a virtue, and he determined that the end of that fly was near at hand. Instead of saying, shoe fly, don't bother me, he cautiously moved his hand toward the supposed offending insect, and with a frantic clutch, that plume and hat were instantly torn from the head of that devout young lady. Imagine the horror of the youth and the indignation of the young lady. But an explanation from the young gentleman soon had the ruffled feelings of the young lady quieted. The hat was replaced as well as possible, and the service continued. Herald and Tribune, June 19, 1873. A certain young gent, while walking with his sweetheart a few days ago, conceived the idea that her bustle needed readjusting. He accordingly applied himself to the work of reconstruction. He was startled by a sudden noise resembling an explosion, and immediately there was a perceptible collapse in the dimensions of the bustle. 
not knowing what would be the final result and thinking perhaps the woman herself would vanish into thin air, he made a hasty exit and hasn't been seen in these parts since. <laughs> Poor innocent fellow, he is yet to learn that bustles are frequently nothing but gum sacks inflated with the breath of their fair wearer. <laughs> what can we take away from this? Well, don't snore in church, mind the plume on your hat, and always mind your bustle. These tidbits were collected by local historian Miriam Fink Dulaney and published in her book, Humor, Rumor, and Romance in Old Jonesboro. Thanks, Nancy and the Heritage Alliance for another installment of Ask the Historian. Coming up next, we've got Linda Poland weaving a story about a red marble. What's to learn? I guess we'll figure that out as we listen. During the waning years of the Depression in a small northeastern town in Tennessee, a community was built. And there was a there was a small stand, a vegetable stand, I used to stop by. It was called Brother Miller's Roadside Stand. And it was farm fresh produce as the season made it available. Food and money were still extremely scarce and bartering was used extensively. One particular day, Mr. Miller was bagging some early potatoes for me. I noticed a small boy delicate of bone and features, ragged, but he was, he was clean. The clothes were clean, even though they were well-worn. He was hungrily appraising a basket of fresh-picked green peas. I paid for my potatoes, but was also drawn to the display of fresh green peas. I am a pushover for cream peas and new potatoes. Pondering the peas, I couldn't help overhearing the conversation between Brother Miller and this ragged boy next to me. Hello, Barry. How are you doing today? Hello, Mr. Miller. Fine, thank you. Just admiring them peas. They sure look good. They are good, Barry. How's your ma? Fine. Getting stronger all the time. Good, good. Anything I can help you with? No, sir. Just admiring them peas. Would you like to take some home? No, sir. Got nothing to pay for them with. Well, have you got anything to trade me for some of those peas? Well, well, all I got is my prize marble. Here she is. Well, let me see. She's a dandy. I can see. Hmm, only thing is, this one is blue. And I sort of kind of like to go for red. Do you have a red one at home like this? Not exactly, but almost. Tell you what, take this sack of peas home with you, and the next trip this way, let me look at that red marble. Sure will, Mr. Miller. Thanks a lot. Mrs. Miller, who had been standing nearby, came over to help me. With a smile, she said, there's two more boys just like that one. They're in our community. All three are in very poor circumstances. 
Jim just loves to bargain with them for peas, apples, tomatoes, or whatever's in season. When they come back with their red marble, and they always do, he decides he didn't really feel like a red marble that day after all, and he sends them home with a bag of produce for a green marble, or maybe an orange marble. I left the stand smiling to myself, impressed with this man. A short time later, I moved to Denver, but I never forgot the story of this man, the boys and their bartering. Several years went by, each one more rapidly than the previous one. Just recently, I had occasion to visit back in that little Northeast Tennessee line. I was staying with some friends, and while I was there, I learned that Brother Miller had passed. They were having his viewing that evening, and knowing my friends wanted to go, I said I wanted to go with them. Upon arrival at the mortuary, we fell into line to meet the relatives of the deceased and to offer whatever words of comfort we could. Ahead of us in line, there were three young men. One was in an army uniform, and the other two wore nice short haircuts, dark suits, white shirts. They looked very professional. They approached Mrs. Miller, who was standing there smiling and composed by her husband's casket. Each of the young men hugged her, kissed her on the cheek, spoke briefly with her, and moved on to where Mr. Miller was. Her misty light blue eyes followed them as one by one, each young man stopped briefly and placed his warm hand over the cold, pale hand of Mr. Miller. Each left the mortuary, awkwardly wiping their eyes. Our turn came to meet Mrs. Miller, and I told her who I was and mentioned the story she had told me about the marble so many years ago. Eyes glistening, she took my hand and led me over to Mr. Miller. Those three young men that just left were the boys I told you about that day. They just told me how they appreciated the things Jim traded them. Now at last, when Jim could not change his mind about a color or size, they came to pay their debt. You know, we've, we've never had much, any kind of wealth and didn't have any children, but you know what? I bet there's not another man in Tennessee who feels as rich as my Jim does right now. With loving gentleness, she lifted up those fingers of her deceased husband, and resting underneath were three shiny, shiny, magnificently red marbles will not be remembered for the things we say, but we will be remembered for the deeds we do. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for that beautiful and fun story. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Storytown, Jonesboro's original storytelling radio show on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee. 
back. And I'm so excited to say, once again, so is Jimmy D. Now, before we get started, Jimmy, why don't you let us know where we can hear you playing next? I will be uh, playing with a band called the Blues Drivers on May the 5th at Delta Blues in Bristol, Tennessee. Okay, so take note, you can catch him all over, it sounds like, and right now, we're so happy to have him here. So reintroducing again, the Jimmy D Band. Was just fabulous. It's your first time here, but I hope it's not your last. Uh, one more hand for the Jimmy D band. That was just great. And Rochelle, we went around asking about life lessons, and so many of them had to do with re remembering to laugh. So for our final segment tonight, 
we collected some bright ideas from the cast, which we've put together for a few words of wisdom. You don't have to be a special butterfly. Just don't be a wasp. <laughs> if you really want to impress someone, you have to do it by accident. Don't talk about the problem if you aren't trying to solve it. A dead battery is no good to anybody. Don't be a dead battery. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing says I mean business like using a cart at a liquor store. <laughs> no matter what your cousin tells you, do not pee on an electric fence. It's important to figure out what can be done in five years, but also in five minutes. Always remember this. If we are ever in a situation where I am the voice of reason, we are in a very bad situation. Just remember, expecting the unexpected makes the unexpected expected. What? Be scared of a tiger, but not a new experience, unless the new experience is a tiger. Even then, running from a tiger is an experience. What? How does that work? And what happens if I try this? <laughs> Are great questions to live by, with the exception of juggling chainsaws. <laughs> if you don't like someone, just remember that each of us is the hero of our own story. Try to see the hero in that person. It might change your mind. Thank you, Cast, for those words of wisdom especially that electric fence thing. <laughs> and thanks to all the people who shared stories with us for this very special program tonight, a little piece of Northeast Tennessee. That's all the time we have for tonight's show, and we want to thank all of our cast and storytellers and our sponsors. And also a big thank you to our fabulous music guest, the Jimmy D Band. And thank you, our wonderful audience. Give yourself a round of applause. And thank you to our interpreter. And be sure to catch us on WETS 89.5 FM out of Johnson City, Tennessee, or on the Storytown app. Thanks for coming out tonight. And remember, we are the stories we tell. Good night. Good night.